Thank you for joining the Element Church Podcast, where we exist to guide people to experience life to its fullest, connect into meaningful relationships, and make a lasting impact. Wherever you're listening from today, we hope this message inspires and strengthens your faith. Well, as a pastor to students, one of the things that I love is the interaction that gets to take place whenever I am teaching. So whether that is in eKids and I have a group of first through sixth graders in front of me or whether I'm hanging out with a bunch of teenagers on a Wednesday night, one of my favorite things is the give and take, the call and answer that gets to take place with whatever it is that I'm, I'm teaching on. Not only is it, in my opinion, just more fun that way for everyone involved, uh, but I truly believe that it draws students into whatever it is we're going to be talking about that day. I also think that we don't do it nearly often enough on a Sunday morning with adults. And you guys are actually really lucky because I know that we have a lot more students and kids in the service with us today than we usually do. So they're actually probably going to be able to help you guys out with what we are going to be doing. So for all of my students that are in here, I need you guys to do me a big favor. I need you guys to lead by example. I need you to not be shy and just yell out the answers like you do in class when you guys think you know what it is. But we're going to start this morning off with playing a quick game. All right. Um, what's going to happen is there's going to be some different Bible characters that are going to pop up on the screens. Your guys' job, you don't have to raise your hand or anything like that. Your job is just to scream out who you think the Bible character is, okay? These are not like real life people. These are all cartoon drawings. So it's okay if you get it wrong. You can keep yelling out until you get it right. Go down the whole list if you have to. Um, But they're not super difficult, uh, but it is something just fun that we're gonna start off with. It starts pretty easy and then gets progressively more difficult just as a forewarning. I already see some kids like leaning in, like they're so ready for this. They're like, thank you, we get to play something. All right, so we're gonna start off with picture number one. Daniel, good job. Yep, that's correct. That's obviously Daniel and the lion's den. The angel's hanging out. They're petting the lions. Uh, It's all looking good. We're going to do picture number two. Jonah, good job. Those are the easiest ones, just so you guys know. Um, Daniel and Jonah, we saw, I wanted to get you guys warmed up first was what really happened. So picture number three is a little more difficult. Boom! Good work, man. Coming over on the right side of the room. That's Moses. You can tell he's got the locusts and the frogs. He's got all the plagues surrounding him. Some of you might have answered with like your Uncle George or something like that, because that's what he looks like when he goes camping on the weekends. Um, But that that is Moses. This one's a little more difficult. Okay, the next picture. Joseph. Yes, that's Joseph in his coat of dreams. Uh, This last one is the most difficult one. So see if you guys can get this one. Oh, I'm hearing some, some answers. You can tell there's kids. They're like, Jesus, the answer is Jesus. Uh, This one's kind of cheating. This is actually just a picture of me as I was writing and preparing the message for today. Uh, It's actually, it's supposed to be King Saul right towards the end where he starts getting a little bit kooky on the throne. Um, But for the most part, you guys were all correct. Go ahead and give you guys a round of applause. My kids are in here. Great job answering for me. Um, 
I'm going to assume online, all my church family that's there, that you guys were able to guess those as well. We couldn't hear you in here. The internet doesn't work that way. But I'm assuming that it went well for you guys as well. These were all very recognizable people in the Christian faith. So when we think of just notable people who have done great things in Christianity, these are just a handful of the ones that we tend to think of. They're typically the ones that are most spoken about, uh, taught on, some of the ones that we try to emulate the most in our faith with maybe a couple of exceptions. And what we don't know quite as well or talk about as often teach sermons on or maybe try to emulate as much in our faith is the incredible women that we also find in scripture. So before we go any further, I want to introduce myself. My name is Brendan Anderson. I am the student ministries pastor here at the church. And whether you're joining us here in person or somewhere via video, I just want to say how excited I am that you guys have chosen to be here today, that I get to bring you guys this message today. I especially want to welcome anybody who does not believe in God, believe in the Bible. I truly believe you couldn't have chosen a better Sunday or a better series to check out. In this sermon series, we have been talking about a number of apologetic topics. So if you have not heard Pastor Fred teaching on the Bible or what uh, Pastor Jeff taught on in the very first week of how we can believe in a God when we don't know he exists, um, please make sure to go online and check out those messages. They're absolutely phenomenal. But like with every week in this series, what we're going to be talking about today cannot succinctly be captured in a 35-minute sermon. In fact, it might cause you to walk away from church today with more questions than when you came in. And instead of answering all of your questions, what I want to do today is assure you of this. It's okay to ask questions. It's okay to struggle with doubts. It's okay to struggle with scripture, but don't let those struggles, don't let those questions or doubt keep you from it. Don't let a passage in scripture cause you to throw the rest of it out. Instead, I want you to wrestle and study and talk about what's happening inside because that's exactly what we're going to be doing today. So why is it so easy to identify and name five men in the Bible, but so much more difficult to name five women? Why is it when we think of strong people of faith, we think of people like Moses we think of Paul or Peter, King David, and maybe we'll throw in Mary, the mother of Jesus. Why aren't women as highly regarded, talked about, and emulated as people of incredible faith? That's a fair question. It's one that I myself have been asked. It's one that we don't talk about often enough and one that we need to address today because for a lot of people, this is why they struggle to believe in God. The question of, isn't Christianity sexist? The question of, doesn't Christianity oppress women? Or for today, our big question is going to be this. Does the Bible teach misogyny? Does the Bible teach misogyny? Now, I want to define misogyny real quick, because if you're like me, you might kind of understand what that word means. You might have even used it in a sentence and nobody blinked twice because you know how to use it, but you don't have a real concrete way of defining it. I know I didn't as I was preparing. So the definition of misogyny is actually this, the dislike of, contempt for, or ingrained prejudice against women. So does the Bible teach that? And the answer to our big question is no. No, the Bible does not teach misogyny, but that would be much too simple for me to say no and then let you guys go on your way. So we're going to prove that today. 
And there are so many places in scripture that we could look at to see how women are elevated and praised and placed in positions of leadership, given responsibility, and are ultimately instrumental to the story of faith, the advancement of Christianity, and ultimately God's kingdom. But unfortunately, we don't get to look at all of them today. So I've chosen just a few to help us see not only how women are equal and co-heirs in Christ and the kingdom of God, but I also want to look at where the idea of Christianity being oppressive and the Bible being misogynistic has come from. These three areas are actually going to be our main points for today. They're up on the screen if you guys want to write them down. We're going to look at Deborah the judge, the Samaritan woman, and Paul's letters. Deborah the judge found in Judges 4, the Samaritan woman, which is found in the Gospel of John chapter 4, and then some of Paul's letters. So I thought, what better place to start our investigation into biblical misogyny than the Old Testament? Which is honestly one of the easiest places anyone could go to when wanting to call the Bible misogynistic. And I'm going to agree right off the bat that the way women are treated inside of the Old Testament is like not okay. But I'm also going to say that the Bible is not prescribing that kind of treatment to us today. I promised Pastor Fred that even though he was going to be leaving us, he's going to Louisiana, that I was going to carry on his mantra, which is context determines meaning. So if you thought just because Pastor Fred was leaving us that you would not hear that consistently for the rest of Element Church, um, I'm going to be keeping it with us. Because we need to remember that the Bible was written during a specific time for a specific group of people. Uh, Sometimes when we read scripture, we need to understand that a lot of time it's merely describing what's happening, not what God desired to happen. But it's actually inside of the Old Testament that we see one of the most compelling stories for women, not only in leadership, but in authority and speaking authoritatively for God. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Judges chapter four. That's where we're going to be picking up the story of Deborah. If you don't have your Bibles, you can follow along on the screen. We're going to be reading quite a bit of scripture today. So everything's going to be on the screen for you guys to follow along. Or if you have the YouVersion Bible app on your phone, you can follow along there. You can actually click on the menu in the bottom right-hand corner and then choose events and go to Element Church. And you can follow along with all the points, all the notes, and then all of the scripture there Um, if that works for you. If you're here today and you don't have a Bible, please don't leave without one. We would love to give you a Bible. Just stop by guest services after service, ask them for a Bible, and we would love to have one in your hands before you head home today. We're going to jump right in. Judges chapter 4, starting in verse 4, says this. Deborah, the wife of Lapidoth, was a prophet who was judging Israel at the time. She would sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites would go to her for judgment. One day she sent for Barak, son of Abinoam, who lived in Kadesh in the land of Naphtali. She said to him, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, commands you. Call out 10,000 warriors from the tribes of Naphtali and Zebulon at Mount Tabor, and I will call out Sisera, commander of Jabin's army, along with his chariots and warriors to the Kishon River. There I will give you victory over him. Barak told her, I will go, but only if you go with me. Very well, she replied, I will go with you, but you will receive no honor in this venture, for the victory, for the Lord's victory over Sisera will be at the hands of a woman. So Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh. 
So we actually learned some really important things about Deborah right at the beginning of this passage. First of all, Deborah is a prophet. So for us, we need to understand what did a prophet do? For most people, they believe that a prophet was responsible for telling the future or telling the events that were going to happen. And while that was uh, one of the things that they did, it was not the primary role of the prophet. It was actually secondary to their primary role. In the Old Testament, the primary role of the prophets was to speak with the people about the words and will of God in their specific situations. The prophet served as God's voice, declaring what God commanded them to say. And that's why in scripture, we see Deborah start off speaking to Barak by saying, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel commands you. This isn't what Deborah thinks. This isn't what Deborah wants. Instead, she is the mouthpiece for God. God has literally chosen her to declare his will to the Israelite nation. And that's huge. For a nation who ultimately would only follow God, would look to God for leadership, for God to choose a woman to speak through and to lead is a very big deal. And Deborah isn't the only woman prophet that we actually find in scripture. This is an isolated case. We also meet Miriam in the book of Exodus. We meet Huldah in 2 Kings. We meet uh, Noadiah and Nehemiah. I almost got that's so much fun to say. Noadiah, Nehemiah. All of these women speak for God as prophets to his people. Deborah here is not just a prophet, though. She is also shofet or judge. And this is so cool because being a judge was not hereditary in the nation of Israel. And and what I mean by that is this. Unlike being a priest, which required you to be born into the tribe of Levi, that's why they were known as Levites. That's how you became a priest. Judges, on the other hand, they just arose in the nation as Yahweh, as the Lord saw fit. And they arose in order to lead a sinning yet repentant people into a right relationship with God and then to victory over their enemies. So that Hebrew word, shofet, translated judge in English, more accurately, it's actually closer to the meaning ruler or a kind of military leader or deliverer from potential or actual defeat. Deborah actually gets her own victory song. We find it in chapter five of Judges. And that victory song is one of the oldest literary sections of the Old Testament. So here we have one of the earliest written sections of the Bible detailing how a woman was not only speaking for God and declaring his words, his will for the nation of Israel, but she was also in the highest level of authority over the entire nation. I mean, Barak wouldn't even go into battle unless Deborah was going to come along with him. And I love this. This is maybe my favorite part of this story because a lot of people think that Barak is just being a coward. You'll see arguments saying that, well, the only reason Deborah's in charge is because there is no men capable of being in charge. And I don't believe that's true. I don't think Barak is a coward at all. I don't even think that he's scared of the enemy. What I would say is more accurate and and shown in scripture is that Barak has so much belief, so much faith in the leadership of Deborah that he does not want to go into, into battle without her because he knows if she goes with him, they will have victory. 
Even after Deborah tells him, okay, if I go with you, that victory you want, that honor that you're seeking, it's not going to come to you. It's going to come to the hands of a woman. Barak, even at that point, even in this patriarchal society, is like, that doesn't even matter to me. Just come with me because I know we're going to win. And so when they get to the battle, Barak waits. He waits on Deborah, and then Deborah gives him the command, go attack, for this is the day that you have victory. And he goes and he wins just like she says. Deborah shows us that the Bible not only details how God raises up women to be leaders and speakers for him, but how in a patriarchal society, men and women can lead hand in hand while women are also the ones in charge. Deborah is a wife. She is a prophet or one who speaks for God. And she is shofet, military leader. She is judge over Israel. So I want us to look at the New Testament now. I want us to look at a woman who is none of these things. In fact, who in her culture might be considered the least of all women, let alone people, and how Jesus treats and responds to her. We're going to take a look at the Samaritan woman found in John chapter 4. Starting in verse 4, it says this, that he, and that person is Jesus, Jesus had to go this, through Samaria on the way. Jesus right now, he's traveling from Judea up to Galilee, and then right in the middle is Samaria. So he had to go through Samaria on the way, and eventually he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar near the field that Jacob gave to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from a long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, "'Please give me a drink.'" He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. The woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? So I want to give us some context for what's happening right now in this story. Jesus is traveling through Samaria because he's going up into Galilee, which that in and of itself is actually kind of unique. You see, Jewish people hated Samaritans. They've had bad blood with this group of people for literally centuries. So the fact that Jesus had to go through Samaria isn't even completely accurate or truthful in the way that we would think it. He didn't have to go through there. In fact, what the vast majority of Jewish people would do in this time would actually go completely around Samaria because they hated them so much. I want to give just a real easy example for you guys. It's silly, but stay with me. It's almost like you live in Wyoming, most of you I assume do, and you have family that lives in Missouri, and you go and visit them regularly. You go all the time, you make this trip to Missouri. The majority of people, if you ask them how to get there, they would say to jump on I-80 and it will literally take you straight shot to Missouri. Now imagine that you hate Nebraska. Some of you don't have to imagine. I understand that. Just imagine with me that you hate Nebraska. You want nothing to do with Nebraska and the people who are there. You hate the fact they have unlimited access to corn. You are not traveling through their fields for any reason whatsoever, but you still need to get to Missouri. What are you going to do? Well, now you have to go completely around Nebraska. So now you travel north, you get up into South Dakota, then across to Iowa, and then you drop down into Missouri. That is the path you take because you hate Nebraska. And then back and forth, back and forth, because you do this multiple times, just like the Jewish people would travel from Galilee to Judea multiple times. And that's exactly what's happening in these days. 
The Jewish people hated them so much that even though it was faster, it was a straight shot for them to just go north through Samaria, they would circumvent Samaria every time they wanted to travel because they did not want to be around the Samaritans, but not Jesus. You see, Jesus had to go through Samaria But inside of our context, that's not actually true. He didn't have to do anything. In fact, I believe the disciples and all the Jewish people, they would have much preferred Jesus to go around Samaria like everyone else always does. But he doesn't. He chooses to. Why does he choose to? Well, scripture doesn't tell us. But I'm going to argue that Jesus had to go through Samaria because he had to come to this well. He had to have a conversation with this woman in the middle of the day. And actually, I got a picture of Jacob's well for you guys so you could visualize where this conversation is taking place. It's going to be up on the screens for you guys. So that right there is Jacob's well in Samaria. This would have been where Jesus and the Samaritan woman met each other and had this conversation. You see, Jesus asks her at this place for a drink. And she's a little taken aback because they don't do that in this culture, let alone a Jewish man talking to a woman. Like, this this is unheard of. And we're not going to be able to read the entire story. So I'm going to summarize a little bit for us what's happening in here. Jesus tells her, like, "Um, give me a drink, please. And she's like, why are you asking me for a drink? You don't talk to me. We don't don't, just go away. Go away, dude. Um, And Jesus tells her, he says, listen, if you knew who you were talking to, you would ask me for a drink instead. And the Samaritans were like, how are you going to get me a drink? Remember, Jesus is just there. He doesn't have anything. You guys saw the picture of the well. He can't reach down and like scoop water out or something like that. It's a deep well. So she's like, you don't have rope. You don't have a bucket. You're just a man tired from a journey who's trying to get water from me. And Jesus tells her, hey, with my water, you'll never be thirsty again because what I have, it's called living water. And some of you might not care about this. I understand. You're like, get to the revelation. What's the important part of all this? But right here in this moment, Jesus is having a spiritual conversation with this Samaritan woman. And that's huge in this time. Women couldn't even talk theology in this time. They weren't allowed to have conversations about faith with with teachers, with men who, who knew scriptures. And he's having this conversation with her. He's revealing secrets of the kingdom to her. He's saying, hey, I have living water. I mean, this is a big deal. And the woman knows it. So she says, give me this water. And Jesus tells her first, hey, go get your husband first. When you come back, I'll give it to you. And she says, I don't have a husband. Jesus says, you're right. You've had five husbands. And the man that you're living with right now, he's not even your husband. Which, by the way, quick, quick, I know it takes me forever to read scripture because I love these little moments that we have to stop out. A lot of times when we think of the Samaritan woman, we think of her as a harlot, maybe a prostitute or an adulteress because she's had five women or she's had five husbands. She's living with a man right now who is not her husband. And when we think to ourselves like that sounds fishy. More accurately, what's more probably happening in this story is this woman is a victim of abuse That's why she's had five husbands, and she's living with a man right now who's providing safety for her. He's he's keeping her abusers away from her. And that's because, why? You're like, why? You don't know that. The reason for that is because if she was caught in acts of adultery, if she'd had five husbands and that's what was going on, they would have stoned her. She would be dead in this context, in this culture, but that's not the case. So that's more accurate. That's just for free for you guys. You can take that home with you. Um, This is a big deal, okay? So the woman here, she thinks, wow, okay, he knows everything about my life. Uh, This guy must be a prophet. 
And then she asks him a theology question, which again is, women don't do this. You're not allowed to do this. But she's like, man, this guy's a prophet. I need to ask him stuff. So she says, hey, you're obviously a prophet. You know everything about my life. So as somebody who speaks, remember, speaks for God, knows the will and words of God, that was the prophet's job. As a prophet, where are we supposed to worship? Because you Jewish people, you think it's in Jerusalem, but us Samaritans, we say it's here in Samaria. So you're, you know, you have living water. You, you know things. Where are we supposed to worship? And Jesus doesn't discount her question. He doesn't say, you're a woman. You don't need to know those things. Instead, he says, listen, the day is coming when you're not going to argue about where you should worship. It's not going to matter if you're in Samaria or Jerusalem. The day is coming where you're going to have someone who can help you truly worship. That's where we're going to pick it back up in verse 25. The woman responds to Jesus saying this, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. And we just need to stop right there because you can't keep reading on in scripture after Jesus makes such a declaration. I am the Messiah. I mean, we need to understand how significant this moment right here is. This is the first time in the gospels. This is the first time in scripture that Jesus reveals himself to be the Messiah. And he doesn't do it to the disciples who have been traveling with him, who've been doing ministry with him, who have been, who have been listening to all of his teachings He doesn't do it to the Pharisees or the Sadducees, the religious leaders of this time who are demanding to know, hey, what authority do you have to be teaching these things? What authority do you have to be performing these miracles? But instead, he reveals it to a woman, not just a woman, a Samaritan woman, not just a Samaritan woman, but not even one who is in good standing with her community, but one who has had five husbands and is currently living with one that she's not even married to. I mean, this woman right here would have been the most looked down upon, would have been the most judged, the least reliable, the last person any one of us would have chosen to reveal such a secret to. And yet Jesus had to go through Samaria. He had to come to this well and sit and have a conversation with this woman on this day in order to give her a gift, the gift of living water, to give her the revelation of who he is. Verse 27, just then, they they literally, they just missed it, those disciples. Just then the disciples came back. Good timing, guys. They were shocked to find him talking to a woman, but none of them had the nerve to ask, what do you want with her? Or why are you talking to her? This is funny. We have to pause real quick. I'm sorry, guys, for the pauses. This is so funny because, remember, these are real people. This isn't just a story that we're being told that's just happening. Like, these are actual people having conversations. So I imagine, this is who I imagine. I imagine it's John and it's Peter, okay? And John, he's looking at Jesus with a woman, and he's looking at Peter, and he's like, Peter, you go ask him what he's doing with her. And Peter's like, I'm not asking him what he's doing with her. And John's like, Peter, you ask dumb questions all the time. You go ask him why he's with, and Peter, he's like, no, 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 you're the favorite, John. If anyone's going to ask him what's going on, you go ask him. Verse 28, they don't have to ask him, because what happens is, The woman left her water jar beside the well and she runs back to the village telling everyone, come, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? So the people came streaming from the village to see him. 
It's in this passage Jesus has just revealed for the very first time that he is the Messiah. And it's in this passage for the very first time, the very first missionary for Jesus is born. And it's a Samaritan woman. Well, this woman runs. She she leaves behind everything. She leaves behind what she brought, her jar. She left behind what she came for, which was water, because she has to go and tell everyone in the village, guys, I think the Messiah is here. Do you remember who who was already in the village at this time? All 12 of Jesus' disciples. All of them were already in the village. All of them already had interactions with these people, but they didn't share about Jesus. They didn't tell people to come meet the man they believed in, the one they'd been traveling with, had been doing ministry with, the one who who was capable of miraculous things, the one who had these, these secret teachings. Instead, they went straight to get food, straight back, because they wanted to get the heck out of Nebraska because they had nothing to do there. But instead, what happens is this woman convinces her entire village to come and meet Jesus. They are so astounded by him that they convince Jesus to stay with him, with them for the next two days, during which scripture tells us that many of them come to believe that Jesus is the savior of the world. Does the Bible teach misogyny? No. No, it doesn't. This is just one example. But Jesus not only breaks societal norms and customs and holds women up time and time again throughout his ministry, but right here in Samaria with a broken, unclean Samaritan woman, he shows us him utilizing them to bring about his message of the gospel into the world. Do you want to know who the first people that Jesus actually revealed himself to after the resurrection was? It was women. In a culture and society that wouldn't even trust the word of a woman, Jesus shows us the equality of them in his eyes, not only through his words, but his actions as well. And when I look at these examples, when I look at Deborah and Judges, when I look at this interaction with Jesus and the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, I think to myself, of course women can lead. I mean, of course they are equal in worth and value and ability. So then why is there this idea that the Bible teaches something differently? To finish out today, I want to look at some passages found inside of the New Testament that Paul writes as letters to different churches around the area. It's in these couple of passages in the New Testament that unfortunately, when taken out of context, has led to the oppression of women inside of the church. And ultimately, I believe this belief that the Bible teaches misogyny. So let's take a look at Paul's letters. We're going to jump right into a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. It's called 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 14. We're going to read verses 34 and 35 says this, that women should be silent during church meetings. It is not proper for them to speak. They should be submissive, just as the law says. If they have any questions, they should ask their husbands at home, for it is improper for women to speak in church meetings. I promised Pastor Fred, context determines meaning. That's what we have to remember when we look at these isolated verses inside of Scripture. Because if you don't understand what Paul is addressing here in his letter, and if you don't understand what Paul has already said in his letter previously, it just is not going to make sense. 
Paul, right here in chapter 14, he is addressing orderly worship. He is not addressing whether or not a woman has the right to speak inside of a church meeting. And you might ask yourself, well, Brendan, how do you know that? And that's a great question. We're going to look at that. Thank you for asking. I know because three chapters earlier in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul talks about women prophesying. 1 Corinthians 11 verses 4 and 5 says this, A man dishonors his head if he covers his head while praying or prophesying, but a woman dishonors her head if she prays or prophesies without a covering on her head, for this is the same as shaving her head. Now, I don't have time to get into why there was the head covering thing. Just, I want you guys to know, uh, this was part of Paul keeping gender distinctions inside of the church and keeping glory and worship ultimately focused on God. That's why he was asking in this context, in this setting, to be wearing head coverings. What's important to us today, though, is the fact that men and women were praying and prophesying. And remember what we learned with Deborah, prophesying is not these women telling the future. It's not them saying, hey, I think this is going to happen, or I think this is something we should look out for. Instead, prophesying is telling God's word and will to his people. And we have women doing it here in the church of Corinth. It's under Paul's instruction I mean, there is a way for them to do it properly, which for their culture, what they were living in, it was with their heads covered because that's what needed to take place. But they were still having these moments. They were still prophesying to the people. So if that's true, then what's happening a few chapters later when Paul is telling women, you're not allowed to speak. You need to remain silent during church meetings. Well, you guys are going to get sick of me saying this, but we need context. Context. What Paul is referring to here is women in the middle of a church meeting or what we would typically think of somebody preaching, somebody delivering a message. In the middle of it, they are asking their husbands questions about the sermon and or they are questioning the person delivering the sermon, questioning what he is saying. So remember, Christianity at this point, it's not like today where it's been 2,000 years. It's been like 20 years. Christianity is, is new And all of a sudden, it's incredibly inclusive. And so we have men and women and slaves and frees and Gentiles and Jews and and have all these people from all sorts of pagan religions and Jewish backgrounds coming together for the very first time. And it is such a beautiful picture of the church. And Paul, he wants them to be praying. He wants them to be prophesying. He's already said that. I mean, he says even earlier in Corinthians that he wishes they all had the gift to prophesy because how much better would it be if all of them could teach inside of the church meetings. He wants that. But until they are ready, until they have knowledge and have learned more, they should be learning quietly and then discussing it afterwards. Not right in the middle of the sermon, not questioning what's being said, not asking their husband when they're probably trying to hear what's happening either, or asking their friend next to them because they're trying to hear too. Paul's saying, hey, until you know more, your job is to learn quietly and with submission to the teaching. And when you have questions, and you should have questions because I want you to learn, you should talk about those afterwards when everyone's done. And do you guys know who else learned in the same manner? The disciples, who, whenever they were with their rabbi, with their teacher, for us, let's just say with Jesus, they would sit 
quietly at his feet and listen to him teach and prophesy and reveal secrets to the kingdom. And then afterwards, after the parable is done, after Jesus has stopped talking about agriculture and where you're supposed to sow your seeds and why nothing is growing, afterwards, the disciples come to him when it's just their group. They're doing their buddy-buddy debrief. And Paul, not Paul, Peter, it's so hard to get him confused. Peter, he asks all the questions. We love Peter. We need the question asker in our group. He says, Jesus, I don't understand any of that. Teach me. Explain this to me. Why, why are you saying this? I don't understand what, what you're trying to explain here. And that's when Jesus gets to explain. That's when they get to discuss. That's when they get to talk about what was just being presented. Paul is telling women in this letter right here who hadn't learned everything about their faith, hey, I want you to take the position of a disciple and then prophesy. We're going to look at one other passage from Paul. It's 1 Timothy chapter 2, and it's verses 11 through 12. It says this, that women should learn quietly and submissively. I do not let women teach men or have authority over them. Let them listen quietly. I want to be honest with you guys. This passage right here, this is, this is the hardest one to understand. And there are lots of people who have struggled with this passage. I am not the only one who has pointed to this passage because at a very base reading, it seems that women are not allowed to teach men that their role is to just learn quietly. If I was to argue that women should not be allowed to lead, this right here is the passage that I would go to, and many, many others have done the same thing. There have been complete books written on these two verses arguing one way or another what they think they actually mean. And I don't have time to tell you guys a book, obviously, but I want to give you two reasons for why this letter in Timothy, these verses, are not as cut and dry as we think. The first reason is this. This is still a letter written to a specific person at a specific church for a specific purpose, all right? So let's define those things, guys. Let's get some context. We're writing to a young church leader. That's what Paul is doing right now. He's writing to a young church leader by the name of Timothy. And we don't know everything happening in Timothy's church, but obviously stuff's going down, okay? Paul, inside of his letter, doesn't just address the women not teaching thing, but earlier in his letter and later in his letter, he is also addressing references to false teachings that had been popping up inside of this church, inside of Timothy's church. This church in, in, uh, in 1 Timothy, it's located in the city of Ephesus, and it had more than just Christianity as their main religion, like, like many other places. There was a growing popularity of something called Gnosticism, which was a heretical teaching in the early Christian church. There was also Greek temples dedicated to Athena and Dionysus. And it appears that some of those false teachings, some of those things that were happening outside of the Christian church were making their way inside of Timothy's church. And by the way, these teachings were primarily coming from women. The reason we know that is because these other religions that were popping up in Ephesus had a very high, elevated, some might say unhealthy, like authority to women. I mean, it was very domineering. It was very authoritatively. So Paul, in his letter, he is trying to address the immediate problem for Timothy, and he uses this strong language to keep 
to keep it from happening, to keep these false teachings from happening in order to bring about some more order into the church. That's what's happening here inside of the context of this story. Paul is not saying that women everywhere are not allowed to teach. He's saying, hey, I know right now you're dealing with false teachings, heretical teachings. So here is a way to keep it from happening. And that's the first reason. Specific church, specific person, specific context, okay? And Paul is fixing that problem. This letter to Timothy is him fixing that problem for him. But I wanna go over something else quickly too. Even if I'm wrong about that context, okay? And some people would argue that I am. They would say, no, none of that is correct. You have no idea what you're talking about. Paul is not saying that. That's not the reason. Okay, fine. If that's true, sure. Let's look at something else. I still don't believe that Paul is saying that women everywhere for all of time are not allowed to teach. The reason for that is it is not consistent with the rest of scripture. And remember, scripture is internally consistent, but that that teaching right there is not consistent. All throughout the New Testament, we see in so many other places, Paul actually raising up women, commending them for helping him, and more importantly, for furthering the message of Christ and his church. Galatians chapter 3, verses 28 says this, that there is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. This is Paul writing a letter to the church in Galatia, and he's saying, hey, you are all equal You are one in Christ. You are co-heirs to the kingdom. There's no hierarchy between Jew being better than Gentile, slave being less than free, men being better than women because you are all one in Christ. And this is big because in those days, you better believe that the Jews, they thought they were better than the Gentiles. They were God's chosen people. You thought that the people who were free, they knew they were better than the slaves. They were literally slaves. You know that the men thought they were better than the women. In a patriarchal society, men had power and rights and authority that women would never have access to. Yet Paul right here in Galatians is wiping all of that away. He's wiping it away. He's saying there's no hierarchy because of what Jesus has done for you. You are all equal now, one with Christ. And then there's Romans 16. Ah, I love Romans 16. Romans chapter 16, verses one through seven says this, that Paul is writing, okay, again, to a church in Rome. Paul says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a deacon in the church in Sancria. Welcome her in the Lord as one who is worthy of honor among God's people. Help her in whatever she needs, for she has been helpful to many and especially to me. Give my greetings to Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in the ministry of Christ Jesus. Quick side note. You guys are getting used to my side notes. Priscilla and Aquila is actually a wife and a husband ministry team. And the fact that Paul puts Priscilla, who is the wife's name first in his letter, is significant Because in this culture, if the woman's name is first or whoever's name is first, doesn't even matter, that would be the leader of the team or more likely have the gift of teaching. So Priscilla is first. In fact, they, Priscilla and Aquila, once risked their lives for me. I am thankful to them. And so are all the Gentile churches. Also give my greetings to the church that meets in their home. Greet my dear friend Eponidas. He was the first person from the province of Asia to become a follower of Christ. Give my greetings to Mary, who has worked so hard for your benefit. Greet Andronicus and Junia, both another husband-wife ministry team doing ministry together. My fellow Jews who were in prison with me, they are highly respected among the apostles and became followers of Christ before I did. The overall impression one gets from the book of Romans in this chapter 16 
is that a wide variety of women were involved in the work of the church, that they were doing a variety of things, including acting as missionaries, carrying letters, which if they were going to carry and deliver a letter, they were also going to be teaching the letter to whoever it is that they were taking that letter to. They would be the ones to actually deliver it to the people. They were serving in charitable tasks as deaconesses, providing aid or shelter for traveling apostles, and so much more. Paul obviously took seriously and commended the work that women did in Christianity. And I believe that he would commend the work that women do today as well. Currently, we have eight women serving on staff here at Element Church, one of which is in a pastoral position. In children's ministry alone, our top level of leadership, including all of our classroom coordinators, are women whom we could not even have a ministry if we did not have serving and leading in that place. In youth ministry, I have a number of women leaders who are discipling the next generation of the church, including the next generation of church leaders. You can look anywhere around this church and see women in positions of leadership, serving God, using their gifts, spreading the gospel. And I just want to say thank you. Thank you so much for what you guys do. What we talked about today can't fit inside of a 35-minute sermon. Uh, In fact, I believe it deserves an entire sermon series to understand all the facets of what's happening inside of Scripture. But I wanted to leave you guys with some resources today. We do have a number of books in the Element Store If apologetics really interests you, um, I highly recommend Christianity for People Who Aren't Christians and Confronting Christianity. If you're interested in this topic on women, Confronting Christianity has an entire chapter in there on women as well. Pastor Jeff has also written a short pastoral paper on women and church leadership if you're interested in that. Next Sunday, Pastor Jeff is going to be addressing the issue of evil, pain, and suffering in the world, that God might be real, but I can't believe in a God who would allow all this pain and suffering and hurt, and I know he is so excited to be bringing the message to you guys next week. I want to circle back real quickly. Is Christianity oppressive to women? Does the Bible teach misogyny? No. A thousand times no, but that doesn't mean it hasn't happened. And that doesn't mean it's not our responsibility for changing it. This sermon today is not about making women seem better than men, but it is about equality. It's about showing how we are one in Christ, co-heirs to the kingdom. So I actually want to leave you guys with a big question today. I know that's different, but it's one that you're going to have to answer for yourself instead of me giving you the answer. The big question I'm leaving you guys with today is this. Are you letting your prejudices get in the way of who God has chosen to lead you? It's not just a question for you guys. It's a question that I ask myself as well. Am I letting my prejudices get in the way of who God has chosen to lead me? Would you guys join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this opportunity, Lord, to look at your word and see these incredible women of faith, how you've used them to further your love, your gospel, Lord, your kingdom. I thank you so much for for each and every one of them that that are currently serving your kingdom, whether here at Element, Lord, or or Big C Church around the world. It's so important. God, thank you that you have 
chosen us, that you have made us equal in you, Lord. It's only through you that we gain access to the kingdom. And it's not, not because of anything we did. We could never earn it. But Lord, you have chosen each and every one of us so that we'd be one in Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would help us reveal the prejudices in our heart. I pray that you would help us see uh, where they might lie and, and how we can work around that. And Lord, I just pray that you would continue drawing all of us closer to you. Lord, keep us healthy, keep us safe. Help us love you more. I pray all this in your name. Amen. If you are encouraged by today's message, be sure to subscribe and rate this podcast or follow us on social media. To learn more about our gathering times in Cheyenne, Wyoming, or to take your next step, visit our website, elementchurch.life. Thanks for tuning in. Catch you next week right here on the Element Church Podcast.